This show was first broadcast on Free FM, Hamilton, New Zealand's community access media organisation. For more information on our lineup of shows and the role we play in the media, visit freefm.org.nz. Hello, and thanks for joining the program today. I hope you've had a great week. Among the poems of the 7th century Chinese Chan master Han Shan, two about living and meditating in the mountains go like this. There is a master who eats the pink clouds. His abode shuns the haunts of the common. As for the seasons truly crisp and cool, in summer it's just like the fall. Secluded brooks, constant gurgle and splash. Through tall pines the wind sighs and moans. And here, if you sit half a day, you'll forget the cares of a hundred years. That is one of the poems, and here's the other. Layer after layer of beautiful mountains and streams, fog and rose-coloured clouds locking in hillsides of green, brushed by mountain mist, my thin cotton headband gets wet. Morning dew dampens my raincoat of straw. On my feet are my travelling sandals, in my hand an old branch of cane. Again I gaze beyond the dusty world, a realm of dreams. Why should I bother with that any more? Now I open the program with these two poems because we've been discussing taking on the sufferings of the environment in the practice of giving and taking, or Tonglen, as described in Namkapal's text, Mind Training Like the Rays of the Sun. In our last program, we ended with quotes from an article by Professor John Epstein in the magazine Vajrabodhi C, titled Environmental Issues, A Buddhist Perspective. Professor Epstein includes these two poems in his article and goes on to say that the core of Buddhist karma-based ethics is respect for all life. He writes, On the everyday level of understanding, nature changes according to the karma that's the patterns of intentional causal activities and their consequences, of all sentient beings. Mental pollution causes environmental pollution, and environmental pollution fosters mental pollution. The starting place for understanding just about anything about Buddhism is karma. Karma is the causal network of intentional actions, both mental and physical, that is the foundation of Buddhist ethical understanding. The foremost principle of Buddhist karma-based ethics is ahimsa, the principles of non-harming and of respect for life. This does not only refer to respect for human beings, but also for every manifestation of life on the planet, especially sentient life. As one's mind is purified, one's actions are purified. As a result, not only do mental attitudes that are dissonant or harmful to nature disappear, but one's new mental states lead directly to more enlightened actions in relation to nature and more enlightened influence on others about nature. There's also influence from action to mind. As we act more responsibly towards life in nature or life as nature, the more our actions will purify and clarify our minds. Consideration of our actions and their consequences will lead us to more environmentally responsible ethical behavior. He goes on to use the example of the vows of the ordained in Buddhism, vows for protecting the purity of water, for not killing beings that live on and in the earth, for not starting forest fires, and for respecting the life of trees, particularly ancient ones. 
He uses as a practical example the Dharma Realm Buddhist Association where ordained as well as lay people are involved in recycling, teaching temple residents and the supporters of temples not to pollute their environment and in reforestering temple properties. When releasing rescued animals and birds, the association makes sure that neither the environment the creatures are released into nor the creatures themselves will be compromised. Such practices are not only beneficial for the environment and its inhabitants, but also for those who want to practice for enlightenment. Professor Epstein quotes the Buddha himself from the Arya Pariyasana Sutta with these words, There I saw a delightful stretch of land and a lovely woodland grove and a clear flowing river with a delightful forest. So I sat down there thinking, Indeed, this is an appropriate place to strive for the ultimate realization of that unborn supreme security from bondage, nirvana. Now, if we didn't think much about our responsibilities to the environment before, over the last three or so weeks, we've heard many compelling arguments why we should seriously consider shouldering those responsibilities. With no understanding of interdependence and how their actions create their and our environments, political leaders cannot be expected to play their part. Take Donald Trump, for instance, who incidentally had the temerity to call himself an environmentalist, as reported on the 24th of January in a short article in Vanity Fair. The magazine reporting on www.vanityfair.com on a meeting between the new US president and the CEOs of the automotive industry has this to say. For all his many talents, lip pursing, applying bronzer, never letting anything go, Donald Trump is not known for his sense of humor. Tuesday morning, though, he revealed an instinct for comedic timing so fine-tuned you could imagine him holding his own against the late-night hosts who routinely mock him. I am, to a large extent, an environmentalist, he told a room full of auto-CEOs at the White House. He then described environmentalism as out of control and said he would gut regulations intended to protect the environment to make it easier for those executives and for the oil companies and everybody else that wants to do business in the United States to help him make America great again. Hilarious. The laughs were further amplified by the fact that Mr. Environmentalist, who we are not sure has ever experienced nature outside of a golf course, also gave the controversial Keystone XL and Dakota Access Pipelines his blessing to proceed with executive orders on Tuesday. As proposed by a Canadian firm, the Keystone Pipeline would carry 800,000 barrels a day from the Canadian oil sands to the Gulf Coast. Republicans and some Democrats argued that the project would create jobs and expand energy resources, while environmentalists said it would encourage a form of oil extraction that produces more gases that warm the planet than normal petroleum. Studies showed that the pipeline would not have a momentous impact on jobs or the environment, but both sides made it into a symbolic test case of American willingness to promote energy production or curb its appetites to heal the planet. Torn by competing policy imperatives and conflicting politics, Mr. Obama delayed a decision for years before finally rejecting the pipeline shortly before an international conference in Paris to forge a global climate change agreement. The joke is made even funnier given that earlier this week the new administration 
And here Vanity Fair quotes the online ProPublica magazine imposed a freeze on grants and contracts by the Environmental Protection Agency, a move that could affect a significant part of the agency's budget allocations and even threaten to disrupt core operations, ranging from toxic cleanups to water quality testing, according to records and interviews. Vanity Fair also points out that the Environmental Protection Agency staffers have been banned from speaking to reporters or posting on social media. The magazine article ends with, But Trump loves the environment, probably more than any other president ever. If, care, if Trump cares this much about our environment, then it's up to us to do whatever we can to counter the disastrous effects of his caring. At the same time, it is, it is vital that we do not generate hatred or aversion for people like Trump. In fact, it would be much better to generate some compassion for him, and we have to be prepared to take on the suffering that he and his people are generating, because as Professor Epstein writes, as one's mind is purified, one's actions are purified. As a result, not only do mental attitudes that are dissonant or harmful to nature disappear, but one's new mental attitudes lead directly to more enlightened actions in relation to nature and more enlightened influence on others about nature. The more discordant attitudes people like Donald Trump generate, the more compassion and understanding we have to cultivate. From a Buddhist perspective, this is the only way to counter the effects of negative mindsets. It doesn't mean we should not take action, strong if need be, against the great harm produced by such mindsets, but it does mean we ourselves must not become hardened into hatred and violent antagonism that will in the end destroy what positive effects we are trying to achieve. Again, remember what Pref Professor Epstein writes about the interdependence of our minds and our actions. There is also influence from action to mind, he says, as we act more responsibly towards life in nature or life as nature, the more our actions will purify and clarify our minds. Consideration of our actions and their consequences will lead us to more environmentally responsible ethical behavior. This is not only applicable to our environment, but also the inhabitants who have such a strong positive or negative effect on that environment. We cannot protect the environment and try to destroy those in it. That is at odds with interdependence and does not make sense. The text Mind Training Like the Rays of the Sun actually focuses on helping the inhabitants as a means to help the environment. Some weeks ago, I read this from the text. Think that all the impure realms within the ten directions, which are the products of actions and disturbing emotions, are transformed into pure worlds. Geshe Shawapo remarked that this doctrine of training in love and compassion by way of taking all sufferings and their origins upon yourself and providing others with every happiness and virtue, is a practice for banishing fear. The text goes on to list numerous sources in the Mahayana Buddhist canon for such practices, starting with the Buddha Fatamsaka Sutra, which instructs, Imagine transferring the suffering of sentient beings onto yourself and transforming the self into the body that sustains them, which is in the mode of Thich Nhat Hanh, kind of like transforming yourself into Mother Earth, the mother who sustains all the beings that live on her. 
The text also quotes the prayers of supreme conduct with May all the heaps of sufferings of wandering beings, the sufferings of hell beings, animals and spirits, those of human beings, gods and anti-gods, fall on me and may they find bliss. And then the prayers for granting supreme love with a similar verse reads, May the gods, anti-gods and great serpents of all the innumerable worlds from the peak of existence above to the hell without respite below find happiness as I take on their sufferings. Nam Karpel also visits the writings of Nagarjuna to pick out the pithy quote, May their unwholesome deeds bear fruit for me and may my virtues bear fruit for them. And of course, he could not resist picking quotes from the Guide to the Bodhisattva's Way of Life by Shantideva, starting with, Equalize yourself and others, then exchange yourself with others. And also, having seen the faults of self-centeredness and the ocean of good in concern for others, I shall completely give up all selfishness and accustom myself to accepting others. Here's another one. Whoever is keen to give swift protection to both himself and others should practice the sublime secret of equalizing and exchanging self for others. And yet another. If you do not actually exchange your happiness for the suffering of others, you will not become enlightened nor find any joy in cyclic existence. Namkar Pal quotes one more from Shantideva. Therefore, in order to allay harm to yourself and pacify the pains of others, offer yourself in the service of others and protect them as you would yourself. He goes on to quote from the Ornament of Great Vehicle Sutras, the 70 Prayers, the Special Verses Collected by Topic, and the Regular Confession of Samvara's Ritual, which all more or less say the same thing, that we have to take on the suffering of others and give our happiness to them, if we want to make any kind of spiritual progress. Does this mean that the arhats, the hearers and solitary realizers whose concentration is more on eliminating their own defilements than concern for others, cannot make spiritual progress? Not so, says Namkapel. In a nifty bit of Mahayanese, he writes, but should you wonder whether there are not those who belong definitely and ultimately to the lineages of the hearers and solitary, solitary realizers, and if so, how could it be possible for all sentient beings to become Buddhas? You should know that the presentation of three vehicles is interpretable for temporary purposes, whereas in the ultimate and definitive sense there is only one vehicle. And he uses the text, the expression of the names of Manjushri, to back himself up with this statement. The result of the one vehicle is present in the three vehicles' determination to be free. And he concludes by saying there are many such quotes in the Mahayana literature to prove his point. This means essentially that the state of the arhat, that is the solitary realizer or hearer, is just a step on the path to the attainment of Buddhahood and not an end in itself. Some adherents of the Lotus Sutra state that all beings, except hearers and solitary realizers, have the potential to become Buddha. All other teachings are provisional, but the Lotus Sutra is the ultimate and definitive teaching of the Buddha. There is therefore no way, they say, that arhats can become Buddha except through following the teachings of the Lotus Sutra, which states, In the Buddha lands of the Ten Directions, there is only the Dharma of one vehicle, there are not two or three, except those spoken by the Buddha as expedients, 
and those are but false appellations and used to induce living beings so that he may teach them the Buddha's wisdom. Now, whether or not the Lotus Sutra is the definitive teaching of the Buddha as its adherents claim, I cannot say, for I have not studied the Sutra, but it is a strong contention of Tibetan Buddhism that all beings have the potential to gain full enlightenment as a Buddha, that is, all beings disallowing none. But of course, to become a Buddha, we have to somehow or the other come to the conclusion that we must give up everything except our overriding concern for others. The text Mind Training Like the Rays of the Sun now goes on to explain how to practice Tonglen on the breath. Now we've already done this practice on the breath with the John Halifax meditation we did some programs ago, so we don't have to say much about it now. The instruction in the Mind Training text Nump Karpel is commenting on says, These two should be made to ride on the breath. The two referred to are taking on suffering and giving out happiness. And Nam Kapal explains the instruction like this. When you have acquired some training in the preceding process, as you exhale, imagine that you are giving your body, possessions and virtues of the three times to all sentient beings under the sky, and that thereby they obtain ultimate and uncontaminated bliss. As you inhale, you should imagine that you are taking into your heart all the sufferings of every being in the three realms, as well as their causes and that they are thereby completely freed from all misery in its causes. Practicing in this way, the mind and breath will flow in the same direction, so you will overcome distraction and strengthen mindfulness. So the practice is to first practice Tonglen as a mental exercise, and when we have some familiarity with that, place it on the breath, taking on suffering on the in-breath and giving out happiness on the out-breath much as we did with the Joan Halifax meditation. The text then goes on to talk about how to practice after and in between meditation sessions. The mind training instruction is given in the verse concerning the three objects, three poisons and three virtues. The instruction to be followed in brief is to take these words to heart in all activities. And Nam Pal comments, when the sixth sense has come into contact with the six objects, such as those that are attractive, unattractive and neutral. If the three corresponding poisonous or disturbing emotions arise, sincerely train your mind. Think, by these means I have cut off all the disturbing emotions of all the many beings overpowered by them in this world. May they thus abide in virtue and be freed from the three poisons. Practice this in all activities, whether standing, strolling, lying or sitting, and at all times, whether by day or night. He then quotes these lines from the stages of meditation by Kamalal Shila. The great compassionate one in all his actions, whether walking or standing, and at all time, must acquaint himself with all sentient beings. Such a thought should be complemented by reciting the following lines. May their misdeeds ripen on me, and may all my virtues ripen on them. May all sentient beings suffering mature on me, and through my virtues may they all be happy. Whatever agonies may, beings may suffer, may they ripen on me alone. Through all the virtues of bodhisattvas, may wandering beings enjoy bliss. This, says Namkarpel, must be practiced from your heart. In his commentary, His Holiness the Dalai Lama explains these lines like this. 
The text speaks of dealing with the three objects and the three poisonous attitudes. The three objects are the pleasant, unpleasant and neutral objects that cause us to develop the three poisonous attitudes of attachment, aversion and indifference. Further, we think how all other beings also develop attachment, aversion and indifference and say, may their attachment, aversion and indifference come unto me. I'll deal with it and get rid of it for them. May they be completely free of all attachment, aversion and indifference. And we give them back all these insights. His Holiness then quotes the Guru Puja, a practice text of offering to the spiritual masters, which says, Therefore, compassionate, ennobling, impeccable gurus, inspire me that all the negative forces, obstacles and sufferings of wandering beings, my mothers, ripen on me right now, that I may impart my happiness and positive forces to others and thereby secure all beings in bliss. This is also the way to train in words, says His Holiness. We repeat these prayers. May their sufferings ripen on me. May my goodness ripen on others. And he goes on, The point here is that we need to train in trying to develop kind thoughts, such that all beings may be happy. He refers then to the Chinese communists who have taken over Tibet and implemented a regime of great cruelty on the indigenous Tibetans. He implies that instead of feeling angry, resentful and violent towards the invaders, Tibetans would be better to generate kindly thoughts and intentions towards them. That doesn't stop the Tibetans protesting against the Chinese, some being more inclined against the advice and wishes of His Holiness to strong, even violent resistance. From time to time, we do hear of Tibetans setting themselves on fire in protest, although it is rare to hear of Tibetans resorting to violent actions against others, especially the Chinese, which would be pretty futile anyway, as the Chinese outnumber the Tibetans and control most of the power in Tibet. Still, some young Tibetans consider much stronger resistance to be necessary after more than a half decade of Chinese oppression. But putting the Tibetans' situation aside, let's continue with His Holiness's commentary. He says, If we have a situation in which others place their hope in us that we will be able to help them, even if on our side we want to, we may not have the actual ability to do so. This is very difficult. So we need to realize that the only way we can truly help all other beings is to become Buddhas ourselves. We might think, what is going on here? There have been all these Buddhas in the past and all have become enlightened. They are able to benefit all beings, so why must I? Why does it depend on me to become enlightened since there are all these other ones who have become enlightened already. And this might cause us to become discouraged. But His Holiness says, rather than take that line of thinking, we would do well to consider that there are lots of beings who have a special karmic bond with us, who didn't have a particularly close karmic relationship with the Buddhas of the past, so they were not able to be directly liberated by them at that time. So we must think of all beings who have a special connection with us, then we will develop more courage to actually become enlightened ourselves in order to help them. We have to build up more and more positive connections with these beings with whom we have a relationship. His Holiness goes on to stress that in our training in positive thoughts and actions, we have to take a long-term approach. We cannot expect to hear the teachings, get all inspired to implement them, and then notice a sudden improvement in our attitudes and circumstances. He says, even in the material world, 
We can't put all of our efforts into one strong move and expect to get immediate results. Instead, we need to work progressively in stages. Now, this is true in terms of working on our mind and working on our attitudes. To improve our attitudes, we have to work gradually through stages. For instance, if we have a great deal of anger, we first have to learn to recognize our anger and then try to see all the drawbacks of getting angry, realizing that, from whatever point of view we take, anger is disadvantageous. If we have a great deal of anger and have not trained ourselves properly, then when we try to apply the four opponent forces too strongly, we are not able to handle it. As Western psychologists and psychiatrists say, if we try to suppress our anger, it will cause a great deal of frustrated energy and harm. Instead, they suggest we try to release that anger in a more relaxed fashion to avoid the problems of having pent-up anger inside us. To a certain extent, I think they have a point. Because in certain circumstances, we need to vent our anger in a peaceful manner if we are not yet ready to apply the opponents to get rid of it. However, we need to differentiate two distinct cases of feeling anger or arrogance. One situation is simply that if we don't vent the anger and let out the energy, we end up with a lot of problems. Then there are other situations where venting just builds up the bad habit of indulging ourselves and always allowing ourselves to get angry. I think we have to distinguish the circumstances for each of these, and of course it is always best to control our anger or our arrogance. We need to learn not to have to let it out at all, but to take care of it internally without creating further problems for ourselves. And one of the main methods to use is to think of the opposite feeling to the one that is giving trouble. For instance, if we have anger, the opposite of that is love for others. So if we find ourselves getting angry with someone, we can try to feel loving, sincere concern for him or her. And more and more we realize the advantages of having a loving attitude and the disadvantages of being angry, and in this way we are able to apply this opponent. Even if we are unable to apply the opponent feeling in the situation, in this case love, the more we familiarize ourselves with the disadvantages and drawbacks of anger, we will find that when a situation arises in which we start to get angry, the force of it gradually becomes less and less. In this way, we go through different stages of being able to handle and get rid of anger. That is His Holiness the Dalai Lama's commentary. When noticing anger in ourselves, a good way to start learning how to control it is by putting one's attention on the anger itself. Leave the situation and the story that, that brought up the anger alone and just watch the emotion without any reaction at all. Slowly you'll find the anger fades and then one can return to the situation with a more reasonable and calm mind. But now our time is up. Thank you for joining the program today and please dedicate, as we usually do, all the positive potential we've created to gaining enlightenment for the sake of all beings. Thank you and I hope you'll tune in again next week. Goodbye. For more episodes, use the accessmedia.nz app for iOS and Android devices or subscribe to this podcast via Spotify, iHeartRadio or Apple Podcasts.
This free FM podcast was brought to you with support from New Zealand On Air.